I got the news that my mother was dying and seven days later she was dead. It was the thing that broke me in half. Hey everybody, welcome to the Tales from the Journey podcast. I'm Stephanie Zamora and today I am here with my dear friend and colleague, Shelby Forsythia. Shelby is the author of two amazing books. The first one is Permission to Grieve, which I can't recommend highly enough. It's such a powerful book with a hugely helpful process for navigating the grief journey. And then her brand new book, Your Grief, Your Way, just came out in September. So Shelby, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. I'm always excited to sit down and talk with you. Let's get started (laughs) with you sharing just a bit more about who you are and what it is that you do in the world. Yeah. So essentially, I help grieving people reclaim their power and their peace of mind after devastating loss. And this loss is not limited to death. So death, divorce, diagnosis, financial loss, major move, heartbreak, whatever that entails. So when life turns upside down, I think so much of my work is about reminding people that they have some choice or some power, not in what happened, but how they respond. And then in creating their own clarity or discovering their own answers, which can bring back that peace of mind or that ground underneath the feet that I feel like we lose so much when we're grieving. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about your own loss and how that kind of catalyzed you into the work that you're doing today. But I would love to go back to who was Shelby before your world turned upside down? Paint us a picture of who you were in the world, what you were up to, where you thought your life was going. Yeah. I love myself before my mom died. (laughs) And I think there's a temptation I think that a lot of grieving people have is because they can't go back to the old self. They, they hate them. But I actually really loved the girl that I was before my mom died. I was in college. I was uh, in my senior year of college and I had these grand, extraordinary dreams of becoming a C-suite executive in an advertising firm. I knew that I had a gift for words and it was reinforced by my professors and my classmates. And I thought I would be writing copy for the world's biggest brands and helping sell sell things or sell services or sell causes that were going to change the world. And I knew that my presence in an advertising or marketing space just as a female identified person would be revolutionary as well. And in fact, I did my senior thesis on why the advertising industry caters to their audience, which is about 80% female identified and why only about 3% of advertising CEOs are women. And so I was really focused on this gender disparity in the advertising space. And I'm like, I'm going to climb the ladder. I'm going to break the glass ceiling. I'm going to get that corner office and show people that, that this is a space where women live as well. And she had some cool dream. I mean, I was directing plays. I was, you know, engaging with professors and classmates and stuff. I was finding myself. I was in an interview recently and somebody called that those early twenties years of like the launch pad, it's a launching time. And I felt literally as if I was gearing up to launch myself into the world. And so I was pulling all of these, these definitions and these labels and these, um, activities close to me and being like, this is what I identify with. This is who I am. It was almost as if I was announcing myself to the world or getting ready to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's so interesting because you and I have had tons of conversations and have been on a very, very similar journey over the last several years. And I remember when I first realized that our kind of befores were very similar, I just thought that was not surprising, but also awesome because I was doing something similar. I was doing website design. I was moving in the branding and marketing world. And I know my loss just 
completely shifted the way I approached my life and business. So talk to us a little bit about your loss, the loss of your mom and how that, how that came to be, how it happened, what your experience of it felt like. Yeah. Well, my mom's death was like the very worst possible cherry on top of four years of back-to-back losses. And the thing with all of these losses that happened before is like they were bad, but not bad enough to to break me, like not all the way through. And so it was like I was fracturing off in these small pieces over the course of four years. And then my mom's death happened and it was like, okay, your entire life as you know it is absolutely severed. And it's not even enough to call it the straw that broke the camel's back because it's like the piano that got dropped on the camel that broke its back and then killed the camel. Like that was the weight and severity of it. And essentially what logistically happened or factually happened was that she had breast cancer in 2012 that was treated with radiation surgeries, all the things you could do to treat it, and was declared cancer-free in January of 2013. And so our whole family, after having gone through four years of major losses, was was rejoicing. We were celebrating. My parents went on this vacation that was paid for by, by a wonderful breast cancer nonprofit in North Carolina. They were getting ready to celebrate a wedding anniversary. And then like Thanksgiving time came, and we thought my mom had pneumonia or some kind of cold that wouldn't go away because cancer Fs with your immune system. And by the time she went into the hospital, they did enough scans to know that her cancer had come back relatively quickly and metastasized to her chest, to her lungs, kind of this whole space in her body. And they did one surgery and, and tried their best to drain fluid off of her lungs. And it was enormously painful. And by the time we got the news that there was nothing more they could do, it was December 19th. And they said, now's the time to call in hospice. Anything that we could do now at this point would be a matter of time, not a matter of cure. We can buy you time, we can't buy you life anymore. And so we called in hospice and got everything set up at the house. And I think they predicted, I mean, whoever knows what doctor's numbers are are, are based on, but we thought we might have six months to, six weeks to six months or so. And then she died in seven days. And I know a lot of people categorize sudden loss as like, natural disaster or car accident, something that literally takes your person away and in a split second. But this felt so sudden to me. It was like I got the news that my mother was dying and seven days later she was dead. And so I classify this very much as a sudden loss because I hadn't even taken in the information that she was on her way there before she yeah. arrived. And gosh, it 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 was the thing that broke me in half. And I told a group of grieving people just today, I'm like, even the first six months after her death is a is a black hole to me. I don't really know what happened, where I went, who I was with, what I did. All I know is that I came out the other side of it, not really in good shape. <laughs> I was kind of banged up after all of that, but it it changed my life because in grieving her death, I was also grieving an enormous loss of faith, a loss of self, a loss of yeah. identity in my household, a loss of a feeling of home, a loss of the structure of family as I knew it. And then a lot of people know from listening to my work that in her loss, she and I were fighting about who I was going to be in the world. Because as I was announcing myself as a young 20-something, I had also come out of the closet as a queer woman. And that was not a thing that aligned with her religious beliefs. And so she died in the middle of a fight. And so we weren't done uh, with what we needed to do as mother and daughter. And so there was a lot of grief under grief, under grief, under grief, under grief. Yeah. Oh, it gives me goosebumps. I've heard you tell this story many times, but it still gives me goosebumps every time 
I know you said that that six months after was a blur, which I totally relate to and understand. Do you remember anything about the moment, the moment where you can feel that like that line is drawn in the sands of time, right? Like I remember that moment for me very clearly. I know not everybody does, but if you have any memory of what that experience was like, I'd love for you to share. It was in the parking lot of my favorite restaurant in my hometown because the moment that she died, I was actually out to lunch with my girlfriend at the time who had driven an hour and a half to be there. It was the first time she had seen me over winter break from college. And she was like, let's go to lunch. We'll get you out of the house. Everybody tries to get you out of the house when you're grieving, which sometimes was helpful, but sometimes felt like I was away from where I needed to be. So it was a very strange experience. And nobody ever really says, let's get you out of the house at any other time in your life than when you're grieving. (laughs) Side note, I digress. But I got a call from my dad as we were getting our coats and getting up to leave. We were literally sliding out of the booth at this diner. And I got the call from my dad and I remember walking outside and there were two sets of doors. I remember pushing both sets of doors open and getting about five feet away from her car, but still where traffic was coming in and out. And I just dropped to my knees on the pavement and I immediately started crying. And I felt it was as if I couldn't hold up my own body anymore. It, all the strength I had, almost all of the, the life force that I had was just like snap gone in an instant. And I had to be picked up off of the pavement. And there was a guy who came out the door and was like, is she okay? Like thought I collapsed or something and had gone unconscious, but I hadn't, but I was literally weeping and wailing in the parking lot of this diner, December 26th, 2013. So it was the day after Christmas. People were, you know, treating their Christmas hangovers with French fries and and diner food. And and gosh, I remember it being cold and hard. I think those are the sensations I remember the most is it was cold outside and the ground was hard. And it was very, I mean, thinking back now, I've never thought about this before, but it was very metaphorical of like a world without my mother. Felt very cold and very hard. And so that feels very appropriate as the place where it all came apart. Yeah. You know, my loss happened during the holiday break too. And there was something about that that is, I'm grateful for now. I don't know that I had the capacity to feel that when I was in the moment, but that's the time of year when, a good portion of the world stops. And then all of a sudden, like life resumes, right? We have to go Mm -hmm. back. You probably, we're supposed to go back to school. We have to go back to work. Like the world carries on. And what was it like for you after that loss and and being shattered so deeply in that way to like be asked to re-engage with your own life? Hmm. I knew I was alive but I don't feel like I was participating in my life, if that makes sense. Like I knew I was doing things that contributed to my being alive. Like I knew I was eating at some point and I knew I was doing my schoolwork at some point and I knew I was going to parties with friends at some point. But to really be there or even make the choice to be there, I was like, I don't, I would, I would arrive at places and not know how I got there. Or I would turn in assignments and not remember doing them. And so there was very much this amnesia about being alive. 
which was mind blowing to me because I think up until that point in my life, it's not that I was present all the time, because I don't know that any human is 100% present all the time, but I felt like I had some sense of control or power about where I was or what I did or where I was going. And so I felt as if the world was on this trajectory, the world was going somewhere and I just got on the train and allowed it to carry me wherever the hell it was going to carry me. So probably, I guess if I had used words to describe it, like disengaged or dissociated, but it, 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 I wrote something like this line in my first book, Permission to Grieve. It was like, I was no longer a participant in my life. I was simply along for the ride. And that was very much what I felt like. How long did that feeling last? How long did it go on? It's hard to put numbers on this. Six months is when it is when kind of the blackout lifted. Yeah. I remember more, more and more in my life comes back to me after about the six month mark, which would have been like July 2014, but at least for the first two and a half years or so, I still felt like I was wandering in the woods somewhere. I had been dropped off in the woods or a cornfield or somewhere with absolutely no map, no GPS, no tools, no direction. Because in my mother's death, it was like all of my dreams for the future also died. And it wasn't even that the dreams themselves died, it was that my passion for the dreams died. And so I would look at those things and be like, yeah, I guess abstractly I still want them, but the drive to achieve them or the drive to get there was dead. And, and so to live a life with no goals or no aspirations or no real sense of direction or purpose or motivation or aspiration or kind of whatever you want to call that driving energy that would propel you somewhere willingly, that was very much absent. And it was only after, yeah, probably about two and a half years or so that I really tuned into something that felt like desire again. I wanted to be somewhere different than I was. And that's kind of when life, that generative force cracked open the door and entered again. Yeah. Do you feel like during that period, there was any particular, we all term it differently, but any particular rock bottom moment or moment where you became aware of like, I am drifting in some abyss and some unknown. And even if you couldn't necessarily do anything about it, I feel like there's often this awareness of like, I can't stay here. Like this is, this is not a life worth living. This is not productive. I don't feel purposeful. I don't feel like me. Was there any kind of moment like that? Or was there a string of moments? I think the biggest one, it's kind of adjacent to that. It's not exactly defined as I don't know if I ever had a moment where I thought I can't keep living like this anymore. I think it was a constant hum in the back of my head. Yeah. Because I, something in me, something in me was very much grieving, but there was like 0.5% or like 1% of myself that was always whispering. It's like, this is not a full life. This is not, it's not, this is not your life, but it was like, this is not a full life for you. And there's got to be something more than this. I kind of had this this itch. It's why I kept staying alive, really, if you want to get pretty dark about it. But I was like, there's some, there's something else that's coming or something else that is going to unlock. I don't know. I don't know if you would call it faith because that's not a word that I would have resonated with back then. But the, the biggest thing that happened that was really a catalyst for everything, two things. The first is that I started reading again, which was propelled by a random 
lending library in the workplace that I worked for. And there was upstairs on the second floor, there was like a bookshelf where people bring in books from home and you could sign them out. And I'd read this book about habits and habit change that essentially said, if you want to bring more happiness into your life, which like happiness was a far goal, but I was going to try anyway, <laughs> do things that you love to do as a child. And so I made this list of like 10 or 20 things that I used to do. And I had this flash of memories of going to the public library with my mom and my sister over the summers and just diving into books for hours at a time. And so when my ability to read came back after loss, because God knows I lost my focus and I lost my ability yeah. to digest spoken and written words. So when that came back, I got my first library card in, I don't know, 15 years since I was a kid and started reading again. And the things I was drawn to were memoirs about people's losses and, and studies about grief and how to survive it. And just to know that there were other people out there who had similar stories, who had, I mean, come out the other side, but it's like, come out the other side and continue to live their life and became more expansive people and, and brought themselves with them through that experience. Like that was very eye-opening to me. And so that was like a constant ongoing study. And then the second thing that happened was this moment where I was sitting in downtown Chicago and I got my wallet stolen and I was so furiously angry. And this was about two years after my mom's death and all the same stories that popped up when she died popped up when my wallet got stolen too. So the world's not a safe place. I can't trust anyone. There's no place that feels safe. Uh, I am powerless. It's hopeless. It's out of control. Everything has been ripped away from me. And it was the first time that I, I like went home. I shut the door. I turned on screamo music and I just, I threw a fit. I threw a tantrum. I wailed. I was banging the floor and just releasing all of this grief emotion. And yeah, I had cried before. And yeah, I had, you know, I had known or had this awareness that I was grieving before, but I never let it arrive without judgment or yeah. without kind of the filter that society insists that we put between our grief and the world. And because I was, I think by that point, it was like, this is the end of your rope. The cho your choices are now either grieve or die. And I was like, okay, I'm going to grieve. <laughs> yeah. And it really only lasted about, I mean, a, a 20 minutes, a half hour. And I was laying on the floor and I was breathing really heavy because I had just yelled for a half hour and all the tears were drying up. And I was like, what was that? And this, you know, became the crux of my first book and this little internal voice inside, I think the same voice that kept saying, there's more than this, something else is out there for you, um, kind of smirked at me and said, you just gave yourself permission to grieve. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Because I want more of this in my life. Because the freedom that I felt in that yeah. moment was unlike anything else I had granted myself in the two and a half years prior. And it wasn't like I had this moment where, and then I stopped suppressing my grief and then all the rainbows showed up. It was very much, okay, that's permission. If that's what permission to grieve looks like, how can I continue to grant myself that as I live a life after the death of my mother. So it's like those two experiences, the, the continued study of others who yeah. had walked the road before, but then also my own very personal experience of like, you don't have to live your life this way. There's a way to give yourself permission to grieve and you won't die. You won't be called crazy. You won't be ostracized from your friends. Like all the things I, I had feared yeah. never happened. And it was almost this evidence that, yeah, you can continue to grieve and to be a whole person and live a whole life beyond yeah. this. It was mind blowing to me. Yeah. Such powerful moments. That little voice, did you have a relationship to it before your loss? Hmm. 
Mm, that's a great question. I think I saw it in very brief moments, maybe only three or four times before in my life. Listeners, take this for what you will. When I was five, I had a very strong vision of leaping from the top of my stairs in, in our house. We lived in a two-story house and floating all the way down to the landing at the bottom. Like my dress was parachuting out around me and flying. I don't know if it was astral projection. I don't know if it actually happened. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was a dream. I have no idea. But in that moment, I felt so carried and cared for by something that was not me. Other times when it happened as a kid, I thought I was in some kind of communication with the wind. I would like hear it blowing through the trees and I'd be like, okay, a little harder, a little louder, a little faster. And I felt like I was this orchestra conductor of the trees. Mm -hmm. And then the one time it happened for me as an adult is when I visited Chicago for the first time when I was 16. And I remember walking through the revolving doors at Ogilvy uh, Transportation Center. And I looked up at my mom and she looked at me and she's like, what? <laughs> I must've had some kind of look on my face. And I said, I'm going to live here. And she goes, how do you know? And I said, I don't know. I just do it. This, this, it was like a wave of knowing had come over me. And I was like, this is going to be a place that you'll call home yeah. for a while. And that ended up being the place I, I relocated immediately after her death, which is funny because it's where she spent much of her early to mid twenties before she met my dad. And it was where a lot of family of mine still lived is outside of Chicago. And so after her death, that became a refuge within a city for me. Yeah. But even at 16, before I knew any of this was going to happen, there was this deep knowing of, and this is where you will reside. But other than that, I don't know that I would say that I was intuitively guided at all. I don't know if the little voice was really a factor in anything. It was just kind of this cool thing that happened every once in a while. Yeah. But in my grief, it was very persistent and also patient. It kind of yeah. waited for me to listen to it. Yeah. What was it like to have that experience of the persistent message and voice when you're just lost in oblivion of the grief, but also just trying to get through your life? What was, what was the relationship to it? How frequently did it show up? Did you trust it at first? And tell us more about that. I don't think I've ever called it into doubt or called it into question. That's funny that you asked that because I would have never considered that before. I have to think more on this because nobody's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> wow. I, I don't know if I could have told you with what frequency it showed up, but it was often enough that I really noticed. I don't know. Definitely more than monthly. <laughs> yeah. This was also a time in my life when I started paying attention to dreams and symbols. I mean, like anything I could do to get the memory of my mother closer to me in mm -hmm. real life now that she was no longer physically here. And so I was, I was playing in and dabbling in all of these spaces where I needed her to show up in another way. And so Reiki or finding pennies on the ground or looking for three birds, groups of threes, anytime I went anywhere. And so I was like, okay, how can I see symbols? How can I see signs? How can I make more meaning of the world? Because she is now gone. And so it was like, inserting myself into all these different practices or ways of being amplified the sound of that voice because yeah. in in making meaning where maybe there was no meaning before it kind of fed into this voice of there is more to life than this because you are literally creating more of your life in creating more of this meaning very self-reinforcing and so as i participated in those things and developed 
a different relationship with my mom. It was like I was also developing a different relationship with myself, but the voice kept getting louder and louder to the point now where I feel like, I mean, it's here constantly. It guides quite a fair bit of what I do and why I do it. I think it scares some people because they don't know what living like this is like. And it is as if now I know no other way of being. Totally. So you had that big grief release moment and sounds like it shifted your relationship to the experience of grief. What happened after that? What was your grieving process like? Hmm. I said a lot of things that I needed to say, which I think is what I'd been holding back. It was as if I allowed, um, it was, a, it was like I told my head to shut up and my heart to have a voice. Mm. <laughs> I was like, shut up up there in the attic and then the heart <laughs> space got to come out and, and say what it needed to say. A lot of this was done through like practiced action steps for grief that I found in books and things like that. It's like I need to, even if I can't communicate with my mother in, in real life, I need to tell her I'm angry. I need to tell her I miss her. I need to tell her that I'm not okay. Yeah. And so I shifted from this place of trying to fit myself into the expectations of what grief should look like, heavy air quotes there, and allowed myself to tell the truth of what was actually happening. It's like, I'm not doing well. Some of my friends and family don't know how to support me. This is actually affecting my brain and my memory so much more than I thought it would. Instead of trying to say, you use this phrase that I love called fine and good. (laughs) I stopped pretending that I was fine and good. I stopped (laughs) pretending that it was only going to last for a year. I stopped pretending that everybody automatically knew how to show up for me. I stopped pretending that it didn't have an effect on my brain or how I showed up in public spaces or every time the holidays rolled around. Like I stopped trying to mash myself into a little box that society, the media, even myself created that was like, this is what grief is supposed to be. And even now I shift into lower register when I talk about that (laughs) and allowed myself to be like, but no, really, this is what's actually happening. And so my grief began to look like, I mean, I call it granting myself more permission to grieve, but telling the, the truth of what's actually happening and starting to inquire about the truth in other people's lives. I became curious about other people's grief experiences or even just like, okay, what's hard for you right now? Instead of update me on your life, what's going well? And also demanding or insisting that I be given permission to grieve in other spaces. So places like showing up at work or in friend and family groups where people insisted on always being fine and good. And I'm like, actually, I'm not. So can we, you know, pause for a second and be like, hey, there are other people grieving in this group, including myself. And it felt like, I use this visual sometimes when I'm working with clients of being like trapped in a, in like a jail or a box or something and literally elbowing out more space around yourself. And it's not a very quick process. It's not like the box immediately dissolves, but as you can smush more space around your head, around your arms, around your legs, you create more freedom and mobility within the experience of grief. And gradually for me, it's gotten to this space where I feel like I can breathe more days than I feel like I can't breathe. Mm -hmm. And that's a measure of hmm, as much as you can say, quote unquote, doing well in grief, as I've been able to come up with is more days I feel like I can breathe than days where I feel like I can't. And the reverse was definitely true at the beginning. Yeah. It's a great distinction. And I think it's so important when we're in the aftermath of these big life transitions and challenging chapters and grief and loss and trauma, it's finding our own way of measuring how am I, where am I at, what's working for me and what's not. And so that's such a great visual. And you're so good at that. 
in your book. (laughs) Whenever we do interviews, whenever we talk, you're so good at like simplifying what the experience is like. And so I love that you shared that because it's really important that we find those ways on our own to measure where we're at instead of just going based on what other people say or where we think we should be. So thank you for sharing that. Talk to us a little bit about, so in in journey mapping, we talk a lot about the reorienting process. So you've (laughs) gone through something (laughs) that just turns you inside out. And these things happen when we're in the middle of our lives and they change us so deeply at our core, yet life continues on. And so even not just in that first six months or those first two years, but especially once you started kind of coming back online and reorienting to yourself and bringing more self-awareness to your state and asking for that permission to grieve and, and checking in with others in a different way. What else did the reorienting process look like for you in your life, in your relationships, in your work? The first thing that's coming to mind for me is reorienting is often about allowing more things to die. Mm-hmm. And this was hard for me. Because I, I was granting myself more permission to grieve. I was asking for more permission to show up in the world. I was, I was not necessarily facing my grief head on, but I allowed it a seat at the table. So it's like, okay, you have a voice now, so you can speak up and, and blah, blah, blah. But this was really the time when I had to start allowing my old dreams and my old visions of myself to die. Yeah. Because I was like, all of this grief is so centered around the loss of my mother. And that's like the big kahuna grief. She would love that word, big kahuna. (laughs) This is a big kahuna grief that I need to grieve. But in all of this too, reorienting, finding your, whatever the new compass is that you're going to be using, it's almost like knob turning. I get this image of like a giant computer hub central or something with all these gears and knobs. It's like you have to recalibrate (laughs) the machine that is you, recalibrate the person that is you, and the compass starts moving in a different direction. I think the compass is always present, but sometimes loss is like, okay, it's just going around in circles. And now it's like, okay, the needle's pointing somewhere, but it's not worth pointing before. And there's grief involved in that. And so I had to yeah. grieve the per- the girl that I used to be before my mom died. I had to grieve the things that she wanted and the life that she was building for herself. Cause I would try and revisit those dreams. And it was like my passion, my drive was returning, but the dreams were no longer a good fit. And so it's kind of the opposite of what happened after my mom's loss, because the dreams I still wanted, but the passion and drive wasn't there. And now it was the opposite of that where the passion drive returned, but the dreams were like, I knocked on it. And I was like, that feels hollow. That doesn't feel like where I'm supposed to live anymore. And there's grief in that. And sometimes I still wonder like what would have happened if I was allowed as a weird word, but if if this had not happened and my life had gone in the direction that I was planning on it going and who I would have been and what that life would have looked like because it would have been drastically different from the life I'm living right now. And so the most of my reorienting process was about releasing, honoring and releasing the the life that I could no longer live and the dreams that I could no longer have. And then the next part of reorienting is like, as I was releasing, I was also picking up as I was letting go, I was also taking in those like output and input together. And so I was also doing quite a fair bit of listening. It's like, okay, what's, what's speaking to me now? What, what aligns with the, the drive and the purpose and then feels like a full dream, like where I'm supposed to be. And I feel like I'm talking very abstractly here, but it was like, I was setting these new goals or these new milestones of, of purpose or meaning for myself 
it, I was shifting what success or accomplishment looked like in my brain and how I was going to get there. And more and more of it continually, it, it continues on to this day, but kept falling into this category of what are we, what are we not saying that's true? And so much of my work now is like, what do we, we, what do we need to bring light to that still feels like it's very much in the dark or what's the elephant in the room that's not being acknowledged or what's the myth that's being told that's hurting more people than it's actually helping. And so I started exploring the things I was learning, the things I was writing. I, I started by just sharing what I was learning on my private Facebook page and people were like, okay, this is all new information to us and it's helpful. So how can we have more of this. And that prompted me to start a public Facebook page about it. And I would go live on Wednesdays and just talk about what I was learning about grief. And enough people engaged with that. And enough people came back to me and said, we want to be able to subscribe to this. We want a podcast that I was like, okay, I'll turn it into a podcast. Enough people listen to the podcast. They're like, we love your insights. We love these interviews. Can you turn it into a book? And so literally it is as if falling into this line of work, being in and working in the grief space what happens next continues to arrive to me. I find myself very rarely chasing or in pursuit of something. I have goals. I have dreams for myself. Some of them are are unchanged from my five-year-old self. So some of my dreams I got to keep. Um, After the death of my mom, they still resonate and they still feel true. But reorienting, gosh, in redefining success and accomplishment, it's like, what if we also redefined productivity, worth, rest. And so, gosh, I'm very much practicing now. It'll be seven years since the death of my mom in December, the art of receiving. Because, and I was never taught that before, really, except when you get a gift, you say thank you and you write a note. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To the person, like I, I, I knew that much about receiving even culturally, we're really not taught how to receive. We're taught very much how yeah. to gain and how to how to obtain. And so now I'm like, okay, what if I just received the next thing that's coming to me? Doing a lot more listening than talking, which is not how I lived my life before. And so sometimes reorienting for me looks a lot too like embracing the opposite of what was. So it's allowing yeah. things to die that no longer serve, changing goals and directions and allowing them to change, allowing them that freedom. And then also sometimes doing the opposite of what I knew to be true in, in the old yeah. life. Yeah. yeah. Reorienting, I feel like, was one of the most chaotic and challenging parts of the journey for me. And there's also the aspect of we are becoming in some ways more of ourselves in the process of healing and stepping into what's next while also discovering all new sides of us because we've been (laughs) altered so deeply, so quickly. And before we get into the amazing work that you do now, I would love to hear a little bit more about what it was like to kind of rediscover parts of yourself as well as like meet the new Shelby. And were there many iterations of new Shelby as you did that? Yeah. Well, and something I laugh about is working with a group of grievers right now in a guided online course, and we talk about dealing with uncertainty. And so much of me reorienting was learning to be okay when the answer was, (laughs) I don't know yet. (laughs) And so I think, 
I talk about reorienting as if it was a smooth process, but it was very much like I'm cooking eight different pasta dishes and throwing them all at the wall and seeing what <laughs> sticks. And in, in Permission to Grieve, and this is one of my favorite parts of the book, and people come back, they're like, this was the thing that was the most helpful, is I use this visualization of being in a dressing room. And it's like the clothes you used to wear no longer fit. And in this new life after loss, you got to keep trying on clothes and trying on clothes until you find what fits again. And I know you yeah. know this because you were one of the first people I found in life after loss, but I tried to start three different businesses after the yeah. death of my mom. And the third one is the one that stuck. I tried to start a business called The Next 12, which helped new graduates navigate their first year after graduating college. I tried to start a vegan cooking business because my mom's illness scared me so much. I went vegan yeah. and, and then that was a whole, that's a whole separate interview conversation. <laughs> I'm no longer vegan, but that's a whole separate conversation. And then I, and then I eventually started and stuck with my work right now, which is just Shelby for Scythia. And I didn't stick with it because it was any better or worse than what had come before, but it was the thing that felt the most aligned and then continued to feel the most aligned. And it's so funny, the articles of clothing that stick on your body in life after loss are not always the ones you would pick out for yourself or that other people would pick out for you because a lot yeah. of people's expectations inform the ways you reorient yourself in the world and there's pressure in that. Yeah. So yes, there was a lot of many nights I would fall asleep and feel so uncomfortable in my own skin and I, I suppose I can equate it now to like when reptiles shed their old skin and they're kind of that raw, shiny, don't touch <laughs> me yet, I'm not ready to be out in the world kind of sensation because my new skin hasn't really hardened yet. And so I felt very soft and mushy and pliable and, and mutable. And part of that was good because I could literally become anything, like the possibilities are endless, but also yeah. the possibilities are endless. Like there was terror that that came along with that. And so, so much of, gosh, <laughs> I've even taken a big breath now. So much of my work in reorienting was learning to carry myself as someone who didn't really know who that self was yet. Yeah. And I, I love that you point to rediscovering pieces of myself because pieces of my old self did come back. And I think there are things too that even in our grief remain constant. There's uh, a book that Oprah Winfrey wrote a while ago called What I Know For Sure, but it's a segment, it's a column she writes at the end of all of her magazines. Yeah. And she's like, above all else, here's the thing I know for sure. And I teach grieving people that even when everything else is in flux, what do you still know for sure? And sometimes it's really stupid stuff. I have green eyes, I have blonde hair, I hate olives yeah. and always have. Like it's very <laughs> much stuff that, that seems really trite and really silly to hold on to, and yet they are things that remain true and stable. And so you're not totally groundless, you're like 92% groundless. And those were things I was very much clinging to. I was like, okay, I'm still creative. I still love reading and listening to books. My, the Golden Girls is still my favorite show. And so like all of these things kind of became these touchstones and cornerstones as I was navigating life after loss. Yeah. And then I could build on that because these things remain true. And even things like your values, like, like I, I value freedom. And I think I always have anything that feels constraining. I don't want to have anything to do with that. Or valuing, let's see honesty, telling the truth of, of what happens. And sometimes these things can be buried by loss, and then we get to see them again later. But some things remain true. And then, gosh, meeting the new Shelby. She's pretty cool too. Like my 21-year-old self was cool. But like I look at myself now and I'm like, you're pretty cool. <laughs> and, and what happened when I talk about, I, I don't use the term reorienting, but in my own work, I, I call it um, becoming the new self. 
I use this framework or this visualization of like a software update, like yeah. 1.0, 1.2, 1.7, 2.0. And so as we are becoming our new selves, quote unquote, we're not throwing the entirety of our old self into the garbage. We're using all of that information that we got from our old self and building upon that for the new self. It's like we're adding new features or adding yeah. new new buttons, new depth, new elements. And and for me, it looked a lot like, wow, look how much more you can feel than you've ever thought you could. Look how, look how wide your emotional bandwidth is. <laughs> um, and this can be really positive and really negative. Like joy feels so much larger to me now than joy yeah. ever did when I was in my early 20s, but so does pain. And so it's, I see myself very much on this timeline of my life where as I'm getting older, I'm continuing to expand and become wider as well. And so meeting my new Shelby, it was like these core things are always true and they're always coming with me. And yet it's like, I'm getting more layers of, of depth and breadth on the outside. And as I read and research more grieving people's experiences, I see that to be true in a lot of them is that you, you can't, forget what happened. So the memory of these things comes with you and kind of the the wounds and the scars, but also the triumphs of the old self accompany you into yeah. the new life. But what you choose to do with them in like the 2.5, the 2.9, the 3.0 updates are all are all building on that. It's not old self bad, new self good. That's very yeah. dichotomous westernized thinking. It's like old self no longer a good fit, new self yeah. a better fit. And then the new self is always becoming new self. So it's not like we're done when we arrive at the new no. self either. <laughs> even, even four years out, I started my business four years ago. And the way it looks now is drastically different from when I started. And yet there's something about the core of it that remains yeah. the same. So it's very cool. Side note, you and I both know this, but if you ever want to know yourself better, start your own business. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You will do so much work on yourself. It's not even funny. You will find all the repressed trauma and triggers and fears and stories. Yes. Oh gosh, it all lives there and it all comes out and rears its ugly head. And simultaneously, you will find out more than you ever wanted to know about your strengths and gifts. Because then they get to be seen through the eyes of other people. So true. Holy cow. If you ever want to know more about yourself, start a business. That's a riot. (laughs) Well, talk to us more. I feel like it's easy to say it's obvious from the surface to see how this loss and grief shaped you into who you are today and the work that you do. But tell us about your experience of that, of really stepping into this work, trying it on for size, and then it it's sticking and evolving while you're also still grieving and healing and growing. Yeah, I think so much of it, especially at the beginning, looked like straddling two worlds or straddling two or three worlds. Because I didn't just jump right in and be like, okay, this is the next thing I'm committed to. Not only did I continue to hold down like day jobs so I could pay the rent and stuff, but it was like, do I, do I have the chops or the gusto to follow this thing where it may lead? And again, there's that sitting in fear and sitting in uncertainty and the terror of not knowing how this is going to pan out. I was like, I'm arriving at this thing and I don't have a plan. Like I'm showing up at the terminal, the train's going to take me somewhere and I have no idea what the destination is. And I still have no idea. (laughs) I can tell you what some of the stops are along the way, but I have no idea where this train is going. And yet I feel like grief has given me so much trust in myself and trust in my abilities. Like throughout my entire life, somehow I've always managed to eat and have a roof over my head. 
and the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me has already happened. So there's a bizarre kind of invincibility as well. I'm like, well, wherever this train is going, I'm going to be okay. And so just get on the train and see what happens. Yeah. And so especially at the beginning, it felt as if I didn't know what the thing was. And I'm still kind of poking it with a stick, being like, what are you exactly? How big is this thing? And what does it mean? But turning it into something that told my grief story and aligned with my identity It's been something that's been growing, and I'm going to use the word like blossoming, as I have in my grief. Yeah. And its its meaning has changed, or its purpose has changed as I've continued to work in it too. Because at the very beginning, the biggest thing I wanted to do was reassure people that they weren't alone. Because that's what I needed reassuring about for my mom to have. Has anybody else survived anything like this? It was mind-blowing to me that... People just didn't poof die the instant that their loved ones did because that's what I felt like was happening to me. And that's still very much at the core of what I do. And also it has evolved to this place of I'm helping people feel less alone in the world as like an undercover mission or subconscious mission always. But now so much of the work that I do is, is helping people reclaim their power and their voice with grief and this peace of mind that comes from knowing in the midst of all the garbage and the hailstorm and the tornado that it's grief that you're going to be okay because you've got you've got you and so the found the foundations continue to remain like the echoes of it still exist throughout my work but the the mission that i'm showing on the surface and how it shows up in the world i mean all these different mediums facebook live videos podcasts books online (laughs) courses i'm just like i don't know (laughs) i don't know and simultaneously this deep knowing the intuition is like here's what we're going to do next and i'm like okay Um, okay. And it remains very intuitively guided. The thing that, that is awe inspiring to me and something that I continue to be grateful for every single day is that right now at this time in my life, this is what is putting bread on the table. I've had the extraordinary ability to not do anything else except this work just this year, really coronavirus instigated it. So I lost both of my day jobs as a result of the pandemic, and I was almost forced, intuitively yeah. guided, <laughs> to see what would happen yeah. if I dove so far into this and offered so many things that I could end up financially, money is energy, energetically, supporting myself with just this. And so far, the answer is yes. And I'm like, yeah. wow. So even that is astounding to me. And something that my aunt said when I first started doing this work, because I was I was afraid and I still have fears about doing it, of like, does this mean I'm not over my grief? Does it mean that I have some kind of, you know, grief neurosis that will never be cured? Does it mean sometimes strangers on the internet will be like, how dare you charge money uh, for grief support, when in all reality, therapists and other helping professionals do exactly that without the flack. But uh, she's she's like, do you believe in the work you're doing? And I said, yeah, I do. She said, do you know it comes from a good place? And I said, yeah, I do. She said, then the people looking for the light you're sending will find it. Because mm-hmm. I had this fear of not being found or not being seen or not being able yeah. to to turn it into anything that was genuinely helpful or needed, and now as far as it has gone, continues to just, wow, 
overwhelm yeah. me in the best way. Yeah. What would you say your relationship to faith is now? Hmm. The first thing that comes to my mind when you say faith is faith in myself. Because I don't know, I still don't know. The jury's kind of still out on, on religious faith or any kind of structured faith yeah. system. And that's okay. I think that happens a lot in grief. I see that a lot with my clients. But gosh, this sense that, well, you've gotten this far. It's almost like I have so much evidence that I have not only kept myself alive, but managed to do things that make me feel alive. Yeah. It's like, really, no matter what happens, we can continue to do something like that. And so my faith in myself to be my own caretaker, my own manager, my own, my own mother. Yeah. Is really powerful. I did an interview probably two years ago now. And the host asked me, she's like, what's the biggest thing the loss of your mother has taught you? And I was like, that I really don't need a mother. And it sounded very harsh and very dismissive. And I immediately followed it with, in losing her, I have had to force myself to take care of myself. Yeah. And for as shitty as that is, and as garbage as that feels, it is also something that has given me so much faith in myself that like now I'm always listening. I know when the alarm bells are sounding. I know when something's wrong. I know, even if I don't exactly know what needs to happen next, I can listen for and tune into what's happening in the moment. And so it's like, pause, rewind, take care of yourself, allow yourself this. It feels like we're not free here. How can we may feel more free in yeah. this space? Or we need to be resting more. We need to be eating differently or all these other things. And normally this is energy that would come from a good mother. And wow, it is as if her death has forced me to step into her role yeah. in life. And so I'm doing double duty, not only as the mother, but as the child receiving yeah. the care. And so faith in myself has grown by leaps and bounds. And again, it goes back to this invincibility kind of feeling. I, I see some of my friends sometimes or, or people who haven't grieved at a great depth. And, and, and there's really nothing I have against these people, but they have these enormous fears of losing their family, losing their house, losing a ton of money, yeah. losing their loved ones. And those are fears that definitely exist for me, but the impact of them, the devastation that would follow, it's like I've already lived on that planet. I've already spoken that language. And so I'm not so afraid of it because I know that even through that, I've got myself. Yeah. yeah. Here's a quote I love, and I can't remember her name right now. I want to say Amber Hale. And she ends her book with a quote that is, one day I will find myself in the wilderness again, and I will be unafraid. And I was like deep in my first year of grief and just like plastered that everywhere because very similar feeling of knowing my own strength and resiliency and not that I want to experience that level of grief again, but knowing that I probably will and that I'm, I'm far more capable than I give myself credit for. And I think that's yeah. one of those things that we learn through that process. I tell my clients a lot. I'm like, you know more than you think you do. Yeah. 
because the things that they come, I mean, I say clients and people think I'm like some grief counselor just telling people how to live their lives after loss. I'm like, not really. So much of what I do is guiding people to find their own answers in their own way, but with supervision, <laughs> some kind of watching over energy and the revelations that they have or the ways that they intuit how they're living their life already or what's not aligned or what's out of place or what needs balancing or that gear turning, tuning up. I'm like, you know, far more than you think you do. And it's yeah. very encouraging to watch because I think I used to tell this story that the person I was when I was grieving really heavily was, was broken or damaged or defective. And I was like, no, even in that place, I knew a lot more than I thought I did. Yeah. She has a great amount of wisdom. Absolutely. Uh, I always love sharing time with you and I know we could talk for hours, but I know. <laughs> To wrap it up, let people know, we're going to put all your info in the show notes, but let people know what you have coming up, where they can find you, how they can work with you, all of that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is at shelbyforsythia.com. That includes podcasts, that includes books, that includes working with me one-on-one. -on -one. I've just recently started leading like 90 minute Zoom workshops where a small group of us will come together about one topic, so like perfectionism or guilt or dealing with friendships after a loss and kind of talk about that and work through it for 90 minutes. It's cool. It's yeah. always different because it's based on whose grief stories show up. And then, yeah, everything else that you need to see is all at shelbyforsythia.com. So wherever you would like to start, that's where the rabbit trail begins. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing yourself and your work. I so appreciate you. Thank you, Stephanie. Oh my goodness. I love talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv slash free, including access to an eight-week sampler of our renowned journey mapping program. That gives you instant access to impactful training lessons, life-changing exercises, and our signature AccuSesh processes that you can implement immediately. We'd love your help in getting the message out and growing our community. So please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes. I'll catch you in the next episode.